This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Sudan is facing several catastrophic crises. Millions are forced from their homes and people are dying of starvation. The UN accuses the warring parties of impeding aid delivery. So what should be done to save those caught up in the fighting? I'm Tom McRae and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guest now. In Kampala is Hajuj Kuka. He is the external communications spokesman for Emergency Response Rooms, a youth-led volunteer network that delivers aid in Sudan. In Cairo, Raja Makawi, who is the editor of African Arguments, a pan-African online news platform. She and her family were forced to flee Khartoum when the conflict began. And in Nairobi, William Carter is the Sudan country director for the Norwegian Refugee Council. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we really do appreciate your time here on Inside Story. William, if I can please begin with you. You've, in the past, have said Sudan has the highest number of people in emergency food insecurity anywhere in the world. Can you just explain exactly what that means and what the reality is on the ground? It's a devastating situation in Sudan. Um, the largest displacement crisis and now, as you say, one of the largest food insecurity crises in the world. So there's a way to try and you know, assess objectively this, but right now we've got five million people at emergency levels of food insecurity. And that, that means either they're extremely desperate, dying in many numbers, or are doing very desperate things just to survive. So it's a really grim picture of this conflict-affected country. Millions of people struggling in places like Darfur and Khartoum in the Kordofan region. Uh, and of course, uh, millions of, of families displaced from it already also facing their own food insecurity situation. So it, I was just in the Darfur region and uh, working with our teams. There are war widows displaced. They have no means of an income. Banks aren't working, There's no jobs. Uh, I see people selling what they belong just to make um, ends meet for a few days. Um, our colleagues in, in North Darfur, MSF, has just put out a statement saying that 13 children every day are dying in the largest displacement site in, in North Darfur. So we're reaching a catastrophic level of hunger mm. for millions of people, more than any other country in the world right now. Yeah, as you say, nearly 5 million people across the country are facing emergency levels of, of hunger. I mean, it is such a, such a huge number to try and get your head around. Hajuj, how hard is it to deal with something on such a large and widespread scale? Okay, so to, to, I want to talk about the emergency response room and how there, it's, it was impossible to reach Sudan. Yeah? And Khartoum, when the war started, the first few days, uh, you heard it about it in the news because the NGOs and international NGOs, local NGOs, everybody was fleeing. And with everybody fleeing, we still had millions of people who remained, who they, they stayed in their homes. So how do, they, how, do you, how do you have aid reach them? And aid reached them from the first day. And this was using mm -hmm. mutual aid. So in Sudan, people were the only way to do it was to help your own family, uh, for people to come together and help themselves. Because uh, as 
William was saying it, it was from the beginning that uh, a month before uh, the war broke out in April 15, a lot of people didn't get their salaries yet. So people really, really quickly reached the point where they don't have any income, they don't have any means to do things. So they had to put on uh, their resources together. They live in a city. So uh, when gas, uh, cooking gas stopped being available, they had to figure out how are they going to cook together. So it was like people needed to come together to, to actually survive. And this is where when mutual aid came together. And this is when the idea of the emergency response room uh, was recalled. Uh, and this is an idea that comes from... Uh, Sudanese culture, but also comes from how we dealt uh, during the time of COVID. And before that, how we actually came together to topple the Omar al-Bashir regime, a regime that lasted for 30 years of uh, Islamic dictatorship. And it was by people coming in their neighborhoods and coming out to protest. And then during the time of COVID, people came together to try to help each other during the time of the shutdown. And now when the war broke out, people started working in their neighborhoods putting their resources together, figuring it out. And slowly, slowly, as the situation became worse and worse, uh, we, we started building a partnership with international NGOs, including uh, NRC. And we started like coming up with different creative ways to mm. just have food, uh, uh, help with medical, uh, also with children, uh, with uh, our healing personal healing and how do we how do we do all that and and it was really amazing to meet a lot of uh, people in the NGO world who are really active in decolonization of humanitarian aid in a way that is based on solidarity uh, aid and uh, solidarity economy and uh, mutual aid and, and there's a lot of ideas that have been going on for years and years and years in humanitarian aid and it was amazing to see how the revolutionary uh, ideas of Sudan helped create this uh, local governance, ways where people can come together with uh, uh, and, and have like these different things of having a representatives mm -hmm. and working groups and, and actually getting, helping each other out. And yeah. this is what the, the response room is yeah. about. Despite all the amazing work that you and, and many others are, are doing, there, there is still such a huge problem that really is just getting worse and worse uh, by the day. Raja, can you just explain who is holding up the aid? I know the UN has accused uh, both sides of, of this. Who, who's actually doing it and how are they going about doing it? And is it deliberate? Absolutely, Tom. It is deliberate. And the reason behind this is that aid is a political tool. This, is not, this isn't something new. Aid has always been used as a political tool to further political agendas. In terms of um, access on the ground, this means that whichever warring party has more access to life-saving items, whether they were medicine, food, uh, gas, uh, it would it, it would um, prolong their own lifeline, enable them not just to um, supply and replenish their own troops on the ground, but also it would allow, allow them to capture communities, uh, bringing them into their fold. Um, as as the situation in Sudan uh, stands today, the territorial division of the country, with SAF controlling Port Sudan, the east and Port Sudan. Uh, the major kind of um, access port through the Red Sea, uh, through which most humanitarian humanitarian aid um, items are coming through, means that they they are effectively um, a major player in the gatekeeping mm. process. 
Um, RSF also controls different entry and access points to Sudan through the Libya desert, through through the south, and and would do would do the same. Would play the same game. William, does it feel like Sudan has been forgotten about? We heard in the story uh, at the beginning of this program, uh, the UN and others. Uh, basically calling, it was almost a desperate plea uh, to, to keep attention on Sudan. And, and how does that affect your ability on the ground to get aid to those in need? It is a very neglected crisis. Um, just the sheer scale of what's happening, the severity, uh, not just food insecurity, not just war, you know, there's also state and economic collapse of a very large country of around 50 million people. So it really doesn't garner the right support. And when I say that, you know, the right diplomatic and political attention, the right level of funding for us to be able to, to, to do a response. So it does very much feel like it's neglected, whether it's obscured mm. intentionally, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, the reality is that everyone needs to stand up because what's happening in Sudan is completely terrible. Yeah. Raja, how, how do you keep it in the public's attention, especially, you know, with the war in Ukraine ongoing and obviously uh, the war on Gaza, uh, I guess, getting the most headlines at this point in time? How do you keep the focus on Sudan? It's really difficult. And the problem is that Sudan only features in the international attention when it's kind of tied or tethered to some sort of political negotiation or peace uh, platform in one of the regions, kind of, you know, many, um, many capitals. First, it was Jeddah, later it was Addis, and now, now the latest uh, uh, contender is, is Manama in Bahrain. Uh, so you've got um, kind of uh, infrequent and kind of in-between um, um, uh, attention um, um, when it comes to Sudan, always tied to kind of, you know, um, uh, political processes at the highest level. And unfortunately, when these fall apart, when they cease to exist, attention attention to, to, the, to the larger kind of crisis um, of Sudan kind of withers and dies away. Now, civic actors in their kind of, you know, many, many uh, outfits, whether they were uh, kind of, um, as as Hajjuj said, they were um, ERR responders, if they were RC uh, members, whether they're kind of um, uh, civic actors, um, 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 you know, part of the kind of new force diaspora that lives in for anywhere from, from Cairo to, uh, to, to Nairobi. Those people are doing a great job in terms of using social media to raise awareness around what's going on in Sudan day by day and why the situation is super dire and what can be done about it. I mean, the amount of um, 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 GoFundMe campaign, so crowdfunding has been actually a very useful and major tool in dealing with the day-to-day -day kind of, you know, gaps in humanitarian uh, needs for most Sudanese people whether it was evacuation, um, um, uh, um, urgent kind of, you know, access to medicine, mm. um, uh, support for women who have been raped. And all of that obviously is in the complete absence also of humanitarian actors on the ground and push from the international community on the outside. Yeah, and that's obviously clearly having an impact on the ground. We saw uh, in the story at the beginning of the show uh, the Zamzam refugee camp, we heard a child is dying every two hours. 
I mean, that should be gaining international headlines right across the world. Can you uh, just explain, Hajuj, why that is? What is happening in that refugee camp? Is it just simply that not enough aid is getting in? And what are people having to do to try and survive? Uh, I mean... I, th I think the, the the boredom of the world with uh, with this repeated uh, one narrative, single narrative of Africa as war and seeing these images is is not is, has been normalized. So that's why it does not matter. So I see. I feel like when you concentrate on the idea, despite all of this, people are not dying, and and the idea of yes, there's mutual aid, yes, people are helping each other, and and finding human stories instead of talking about the two generals or or Russia's involvement in Sudan. I think if we try to do uh, uh, to humanize the Sudanese mm. people, bring individual stories and figure out how, despite all of this, where all of these people should actually die, they're not dead. And why, why, why are they not dead? And I think that's when we start tapping into something that's worth it, because really we're doing a revolution within the idea of humanitarian aid and the amount of help we're being giving is actually amazing. So although the world has not been responding, there's been a lot of aid that went to Sudan because of ourselves, because of uh, Nafir, because of helping each other. So I feel like if we want to humanize the Africans and humanize our stories, then we will look at it differently. But if you want to just talk about uh, how like how how sad it is and the and the food and everything Sudan has been already before in 1988 through a famine. Uh, mm -hmm. Seeing uh, East Africans in a famine state is not going to move anybody uh, that much because it's it's, it's already been normalized. Mm. So we have to start digging deeper into and having better reporting, deeper reporting, and actually make it, for lack of a better word, sexy to actually watch what these people are doing and how amazing what they're doing. So I feel like if yeah. we just concentrate on that one single narrative, it is really important to put it out. It's really important to have these numbers out. It's really important to say that this is the biggest crisis, but to actually get people to be involved and excited and feel like we can do something about it that can move this country forward, not just from this uh, this famine, but actually go towards the development all that. And it is possible. You have to really dig into Sudan and really find the amazing Sudanese people who can do it. So I really mm. feel like what is needed is harder, deeper, uh, uh, reporting into these places and it's going to take a while because it's going to be really hard in the beginning to report in Sudan which you only report on once, once yes. every month or something so it's really hard in the beginning but if it's continuous and people are starting to follow stories that are different than just famines and uh, one single narrative of the African story then we can move forward yeah. Uh, William, I can see you nodding along there. Do you agree with that sentiment that organisations like yours and many others need to change the narrative here and, and how do you go about doing that? I definitely agree. It's, you know, it's partly neglected because sometimes it seems so hopeless. But we, we have, you know, a very positive story to tell in terms of the resilience of the Sudanese civilian social movements. You know, four or five years ago, Sudan was a good news story. It was having a democratic transition pushed along by civilian social movements. Now we have one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes in the world. And despite all the barriers to, to access and the underfunding and the diplomatic and political neglect, we have again a civilian social movement trying to, to pull up the pieces. And there's a very positive story there. I think the fact that journalists can't easily access, the stories aren't coming out, but there is social media. I think there's something very positive to tell and it should 
I hope lead to a reconfiguration of how aid works. But we will need all actors. Mm. We do need the UN-led system. We do need uh, NGOs. The diaspora groups are there. But definitely what's shone out is, is what's happening on the ground in some of the worst affected areas led by communities and uh, local initiatives. Yeah. Uh, Raja, I just want to move on to the possibility of, of peace. Do you think at this point in time, nine months on uh, from the beginning of this war, that there is a path to peace anytime soon? Well, I mean, to be, to be honest, Tom, it's very difficult to answer this question with any degree of certainty. Um, if we're going to kind of rely on our predictions, uh, in our predictions on the possibility of the two generals reconciling, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be likely. Uh, mostly because um, the international process that's driving the, you know, the supposedly driving the um, um, the reconciliation process isn't is is one that's kind of pegged to um, uh, the political interests of the group. Sorry, the countries that mm -hmm. are, um, 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 you know, th that are actually. Um, 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 sponsoring, sorry, sponsoring these peace talks. And there's a reason why they keep failing. There's a reason why um, these peace talks don't move forward um, in, in a productive manner. They do reflect a larger fracturing pra uh, pattern of regional politics that seems to drive uh, conflict in Sudan kind of um, um, in a more kind of, you know, a, a, a dire and intense way. So, Sorry, just um, to interrupt you. Why why do they keep failing? Why do they keep failing? Yeah, well, why? because I mean the, I mean because um, because the drivers of you know what makes peace possible um, isn't reflected neither in the approach or the agenda uh, um, of, of 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 these um, of these systems. Um, first of all, they're very, they're very transactional in nature. Um, they tend to kind of um, facilitate a process where um, the op the opposing parties um, uh, approach approach the the peace process from a point of uh, uh, showing power. So whomever mm. has more authority, more 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 um, more fighting power on the ground is then able to kind of dictate the terms of the negotiation. Peace mm. processes in Sudan are and continue to be. They were always like this. They're very transactional. Mm. Um, and uh, while um, you know the humanitarian conditions of the of the people of Sudan they should have been at the center of these agendas, at, at the center of these agenda talks, uh, they're nowhere to be found. There's no mm. representation for Sudanese people and their needs uh, to either drive the process or even um, um, uh, serve as um, 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 as, as, a, as a as sorry as a pressure card okay um so they they are they are deemed uh, to fail yeah you know? okay you've come across uh, so far as very positive and optimistic uh You've obviously got a, a very widespread team right across the country uh, working through the grassroots. How do they feel about where things are nine months on from the war and, and what could potentially uh, happen in the months to come? Okay, I mean, it's, it's on different levels. 
uh, we, we've been, we accomplished a lot. We came up with a lot of different theories. Uh, we, we started working in hospitals and evacuation centers, and we created communal kitchens that grew up to become children's centers. And we have women restrooms, and we have an uh, alternative school program now that's coming up. So we moved a long way, uh, but, but going, going so deep into the war, uh, we, we, didn't, we, do, we are running into situations where we're not having enough resources. We don't have enough money. The situation became even worse. And uh, by, instead of becoming uh, less, we now have more emergency response room in Medini and other places. So we, we just realized that we're just on the beginning of this is going to be a long haul. And even if the war stops, and we're really hoping the war stops, and really when we start talking about the generals and the politicians, it takes away any agency we have because it, it's really something beyond us. We have mm. nothing to do with this war. It has none of our agendas in it. So we just need them to stop fighting. The moment they stop fighting, we realize now that we need to actually build this destruction. The whole country is destroyed. Our resources are destroyed. But somehow, somehow throughout all of this, the civilians managed to, until now, keep electricity running, water running, uh, uh, internet running. So it's really, there's been a lot of work by civilians, by engineers, by doctors, by uh technicians by cleaners by everybody to keep to keep mm. the country somehow together the mm. biggest issue the biggest issue we're going to face is actually hate speech the amount of hate the amount of uh, this war turning into this war against tribes and whatnot is the biggest problem we have because our biggest problem after the war ends is this is going to be an existential uh, question should sudan can sudan even remain as one country can mm. we live together how are we going to do this? And and really, the way we do it is because if you go to my neighborhood and uh, and you see who's being fed in our communal kitchen, you'll actually find a mother of an RSF soldier who brought his mother there, took over one of the houses from the neighborhood to to make her live. And when he disappeared, most probably got killed. The um, the neighborhood, the people from the neighborhood are the ones actually uh, feeding her and taking care yeah. of her and uh, spending time with her. So this is the kind of uh, uh, social, uh, peaceful coexistence that is already so, happening. Mm. But the more the war goes, the more this this will be questioned. So this is our yeah, biggest yeah. concern now. Can yeah. we even remain in the country? Uh, William, as we heard, you know, urgent decisive action is needed desperately here. What do you think should be done? I mean, what are the solutions right now to make things even a little bit easier, a little bit better for the people of Sudan? Yeah, good question. I mean, as we heard from um, good colleagues, you know, Raja, the, the scenario that we see is one that it gets more painful, more cruel for a little while longer, but there is some forms of relief and respite. You know, these local initiatives lack funds. The UN-led response, including NGOs, lack funds. It's only a few percent funded uh, in comparison to to what is needed to, you know, avert famine-like conditions. You know, to respond in one of the worst civil wars and conflicts on the planet at the moment. So, firstly, we need donors to step up and fund a diverse, decentralised response that gets aid to where it most matters. We really need some diplomatic leadership and political leadership. Uh, you know, ambassadors are trying, but it hasn't really been a priority for foreign ministers or the Security Council or, or other things to how to impose peace. You know, the military ceasefire talks failed, so we need to, to re-strategize a little bit on, on this. But I haven't seen the convening power of, of the international system really come up with a, a you know, coherent, effective solution. And, and in the meantime, we see both sides investing more and more in the in the war machinery that's playing out at the moment. Mm. 
William, we've only got uh, about a minute or so left. How hopeful are you that all of that can actually happen anytime soon? I think that the world can decide tomorrow to take Sudan and its people's situation seriously. I don't think that there's anything stopping us trying, but I haven't yet seen a hugely serious effort. So I, I'm hopeful that it's positive. Whether the right stars have aligned, you know, we still need to keep pushing for it. But I think that the world will be persuaded. I think at least, you know, one test of whether there's a genuine intent is whether humanitarian access is provided, whether protections and safety for local responders is provided. So I'd ask that of both sides, but I think mm. that they, you know, we, we have to have a much stronger, bolder plan in place. Yeah, like you say, a real test of the world's genuine intent. Thank you so much, uh, Hajuj Raja and William, uh, all three of you for being on Inside Story. We really do appreciate your time and your insight into this. This episode was produced by Mohamed Elaichi, Sarah Gill, Veronica Pedrosa and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Suraj Sankar. The programme was edited by Mohamed Sobi, Zainab Bada and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch each and every episode. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes.